0: A quick note before we start. The content in this episode should not be considered to be medical advice, and no physician-patient relationship is implied. This is a Connected by Cancer podcast extra. I will tell David's story until my last breath. Back in episode four, The Seekers, we featured a discussion with retired lab technician Alice Hungerford. She shared one great story after another, and we wanted you to be able to spend more time with her. We hope you enjoy this bonus episode of Connected by Cancer. David was an incredible person, brilliant. Other scientists of the world had said he was probably the most brilliant mind of his generation. He was an incredible guy, really was. (laughs) He knew everything about everything. And people would ask him, "Come, just come into our lab. In those days, you could sit in the lab and eat. We had this table, and I so wish I had this table now, but it's probably radioactive. It was this great soapstone top table because all the lab benches were made out of soapstone. It was easy to mill. It was heavy. It, it was non-reactive. And all labs had soapstone countertops. Now they're all, who knows what they are. Anyhow, we had this great table in the lab and we sat and we all had coffee and David smoked, you know, we all sat and smoked and ate in the lab. I mean, nowadays, oh my God, you can't do that. But People would come in, and they would ask him the most minutiae detail of English, the most minute detail of history, the most minute detail of science, and he knew the answer. He wasn't making it up. It wasn't fluff. And if he didn't know, he would say, I do not know. And he would find out, and then he would let you know. The only person who stumped him once who asked, do you know a good restaurant for something, he said, No, (laughs) because he didn't go out to eat. (laughs) Uh, But that was about the only thing that would stump him is where to go to eat or what movies were playing. He played the guitar. He carved. He was better at hand whittling with a pocket knife than carving with a big carving, but we had those tools too. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, neither can I, but he knew French. He and his mother taught themselves French. That was the type of person he was. I mean, truly, he was a Renaissance-type person. About 1951, David was graduated from Temple with a bachelor's of science degree in biology, and he was looking for a job. And his mother was in a hurry to get him a job because here was this man, he was not a kid anymore because he had been in the Navy during World War II, who didn't have a job. There was a neighbor behind them who said, well, she had heard that there was this place in Fox Chase, that did science. And Ethel put him in the car because he didn't have a car yet, and they drove over to Fox Chase. Uh, at that time, it was called the Institute for Cancer Research, and it had just been built, I think, in 1948. So it was a relatively new facility. So David walked in, and it's now the Ryman building, and he walked up those stone steps, and there was a receptionist there, and he said that he was looking for a job. Did they have anything? And he was very interested in photography because they had come from Washington, D.C., and he wanted to go work for the National Geographic. And he walked in, and there were only two or three investigators, and only one said, well, I think I might have a position, and that was Jack Schultz. Jack Schultz came down and he interviewed David and he said, yeah, he thought he might have a position for David. Jack was doing Drosophila genetics, which was the only animal at the time that they did research on. And David said, do you think I could start next week? And Jack liked his you know, bravado of sorts and said, well, we'll find something for you. And sure enough, he went back the next week and it turned out that David was and is still the only person who ever went to Fox Chase starting as a technician and going all the way up to senior member and senior member emeritus. His entire career was at Fox Chase, and he thrived there. Fox Chase was then, and I believe it is now, a place where people can go and be who they are. Need to be who they want to be. They can go in any direction that they see. Research was different then than it is now, where you could just follow your nose, and that was what appealed to David. And he thrived. And within a year, he was challenging Jack Schultz on what he saw under the microscope on the drosophila chromosomes, because David had uh, an incredible visual acuity. He could see things that were there that other people couldn't really see. And he asked David, can you take pictures through the microscope with that camera. And David, never having taken a picture through a microscope at all, he said, oh, of course, and that helped solidify the position for him. He soon learned how to take pictures through the microscope. Microscopes were not what they are now. These were high-end optics of the time. The light source was literally a light bulb, not attached to the microscope, but behind the microscope, and you had to aim it at a mirror that then aimed the light up through the microscope. And when they had microscopes that had two oculars, two things that you could look through, that was a big deal because originally microscopes had only one. So that's basically how David got to Fox Chase, and the reason he stayed was because he could follow his heart. his mind. Uh, He eventually felt Drosophila were nice, but Mammal chromosomes were very interesting to him. You have to remember, we didn't know how many human chromosomes we actually had until 1956. Up until 56, we all thought we had 48 chromosomes, just like gorillas. Well, gorillas have 48 and we have 46. And there was a change between the gorillas and us. And we turned into us and they stayed gorillas. So David was bored because he got bored as really, really bright people. They get bored very, very easily. He didn't want to be stuck being a technician. He had moved up whatever lower ranks. Climbing a ladder wasn't uh, the thing in those days. You were where you were, and you were happy doing what you're doing, or you moved on, and most people didn't move on. David wasn't really happy, but Dr. Ryman asked David what he planned to do with the rest of his life. And David said, you know, he thought he'd stay here, but he was getting bored. And Dr. Ryman, who was one of the early cancer research people, said, Have you thought about going to graduate school, back to medical school? Well, David was not an outgoing person. Because his family was with the Navy and he had moved 21 times in 17 years, he never made roots. And Fox Chase. The ICR gave him roots. He was there for the long term. David said, well, he didn't think medical school was exactly what he wanted to do, but he would go to graduate school. And at that time, the Institute for Cancer Research was associated with the University of Pennsylvania, and he went to graduate school there. Eventually, he needed a thesis. And Dr. Ryman suggested cancer, leukemia chromosomes, because at the time, there were only four known types of leukemia, acute and chronic granulocytic and acute and chronic lymphocytic. So there were only four. It's a nice, easily defined thesis. Off you go. So he's down there, and he needed material with which to work. Anytime he had a call from any hospital, oh, I have somebody that has this tumor, David would run over. He said he felt like a ghoul. He'd run down. In those days, HIPAA wasn't around. So, you know, you could take a piece of people and skip off with it. And he'd go with his container and get a piece of, he called it people pieces. And he would come back and he would do what he could do and look at it. Philadelphia has been, still is, but at that time was the beginning nucleus hotbed of genetics. So David would get this material, and he would look at it with the preparations of the time until Moorhead and Knoll and Hungerford developed this technique, and he would look at it in about 1958. Now, you remember, this is two years after we discovered that we had... 46 chromosomes he would see what he he wasn't sure because the preparations were poor this tiny little maybe a fragment of something once they got the preparatory technique down and the moorhead technique it was a small micro method of blood culture it was the development of 0.075 molar kcl which helped spread the cells to a beautiful size and did not affect the architecture of the chromosomes. So the development of 0.075 molar KCL was a big step. We learned how to drop the cells in a liquid onto the slide, which made them spread and flatten, and you treated the coat of the slide so that everything stuck to the slides because Pete's story is that he took the slide and, like any pathologist, they rinsed it underwater. And because he was in a hurry, he rinsed it underwater and looked, and that's how he first started to see these swollen cells. Once they figured that out, then he could see that there was, in fact, this minute chromosome on the slide, and it was associated with the chronic granulocytic leukemias. His focus was to find out the normal. You can't know what is abnormal until you describe the normal. Everybody looked at tumors and cancer, but you could look at anything because you have to have the normal first. You can't say that's abnormal if you don't know what normal is. So David was getting sort of restless and he wanted to look at other organisms, but then he discovered that he did animals. He worked with the zoo. He did some evolutionary papers, which is fascinating too. But he was sort of searching for things to do. When he came upon what ended up to be his final life's work was the description of human chromosomes at a apacitine stage, which is a stage in the development of germ cells. At that time, there was no banding in human chromosomes, which is now very common. But he became interested in this pacotene stage because it has naturally occurring banding, very much like drosophila chromosomes. Salivary gland chromosomes have naturally occurring banding. And so he came full circle. He went there. He put down his roots. He was happiest there. He started with fly chromosomes and eventually went back to a very similar thing where these naturally occurring patterns happened in human male chromosomes. And that's his story. How the Philadelphia chromosome got its name is, is an interesting story. Uh, originally, it was the Philadelphia and a supernumeral one chromosome. So in those days, so we're talking the late 50s, early 60s, most of the science came from Europe. England, France, that was where the hotbed of discoveries was coming from, particularly at least in genetics, Edinburgh. The paper was sent to the Edinburgh group for review. Now, they had already looked at all the known leukemias of the time using the techniques that they Used not David Peetz and and Paul Moorhead's technique, but their techniques, which were fine, and what most people were using at the time. And they didn't see anything, so they wrote back, and they read the paper. They did the technique the way David Peep and Moorhead had suggested doing the technique with the culture and the slides, and sure enough, they saw it too. Well, they quick wrote a paper off to nature, which was the mouthpiece over there, where science is our mouthpiece. David was a man of incredible language skills. He knew his words. He chose his words very carefully. When you don't talk a lot, you choose your words carefully. And they wrote a letter and said that they were very happy to have read their preliminary paper on their findings from the Edinburgh group. But uh, perhaps they saw their abstract in Science, which had been published in September of 1960, which noted that they had seen in some cases of acute granulocytic leukemia This minute chromosome, and further study is underway, which is what more or less the abstract says. Well, the Edinburgh group quickly pulled their paper, did not ever get published, and they proclaimed when Hungerford and Knoll's paper, Knoll and Hungerford's paper, was published, that it should now be called the Philadelphia superscript one chromosome, because the thought was that there would be an Edinburgh two and a Chicago three and a Atlanta four, and every city would, wherever the discovery is made, would have their little claim to fame by having the chromosome named after them with a supernumeral. Well, that was fine, except that it stood as the only chromosome abnormality associated with a specific cancer for 25 years. So that didn't happen. At about 10 years, they everybody kept looking because, like, they thought for sure they were going to find something. A, they didn't have David's eyes. They didn't have his determination. And, you know, you can look for so long and then Nothing. So for 10 years, nothing really happened. So that was 61 to say 71. And that's about when banding started to come in in the early 70s. And from then on, it was a watershed. Uh, People had sort of lost interest in human chromosomes. But when banding came in, it opened up a whole new chapter. And people were now doing the banding of these chromosomes. And they could see things that were not obvious before when you just had a singly stained chromosome. The Philadelphia chromosome, because it was the first chromosome associated with a specific thing, cancer, it was actually the first chromosomal abnormality that is really a genetic change. And the basis with the uh, banding techniques, they could finally see where the breaks occurred and the refusion of the two chromosomes. Many People misquote Noel and Hungerford's paper, and they say that Noel and Hungerford said that it was a deletion of the 22, and it was not. David, as I said, was very, very precise in his language, and was very careful in the paper. They noted that a loss of genetic material of that amount would be lethal, and those were their words, lethal for the cell and the cell would not be viable so it turned out after the banding came in in the early 70s that it became known that it was not in fact a deletion it was a translocation of the part of the long arm of the 22 to the long arm of the nine and and thanks to banding you could actually see that So the Philadelphia chromosome, in essence, created a fusion gene. And that wasn't found out until years later that it created a fusion gene, which in turn made people develop the chronic granulocytic leukemia. And it was, therefore, the Philadelphia chromosome became the first instance of targeted gene therapy with the development of Gleevec. And Gleevec was cleared for use by the FDA in 2001, which was 40 years to the year from the discovery that David made under the microscope. He won the uh, Eagle's Fly for Leukemia Award in 1991, and that was his only award throughout his entire career. I, of course, was very upset about that, but he, it didn't bother him, didn't care, because he didn't need other people's accolades to know his work was good. And not that he, it was bravado, not that it was, I'm terrific and they're not. No, it was because when the work is good, the work is good. And he knew that the work was good. And that's why he didn't need outside accolades. So in 1991, he won the Eagles Fly for Leukemia Awards. And then, uh, unfortunately, in 1993, he was diagnosed and died of lung cancer probably related to the smoking. He smoked four packs a day. And like most people who smoke that much, he was surprised that he had lung cancer. And I just couldn't believe it. Once they made the discovery, they assumed that there would be, as I said before, many, many other discoveries to follow. That was actually one of the reasons why David was not interested in following more, because you can find these things, but there was no treatment for it. And there would be no treatment for things like chronic granulocytic leukemia until today, because the techniques were primitive compared to today. Now, you know, in 50 years, we're going to look back and these techniques that we're using today are going to be very primitive. The methodology, the optics, everything was primitive. We knew about genes, but we didn't understand what genes were in 1961, when the paper was published. There was no way to treat them other than the chemicals that would basically, if you were lucky, didn't kill the organism before it killed the disease. And that has been the history of cancer pretty much up until now, where we have this targeted gene therapy. And the targeted gene therapy didn't happen until the molecular genetics caught up with the discovery. This was a Connected by Cancer podcast extra. The content in this episode should not be considered to be medical advice, and no physician patient relationship is implied. To find all the episodes, go to foxchase.org or wherever you listen.